We are looking this morning at what is the theme of the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of scripture open reading along there with me this morning. And before we do look at this together, let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask him to bless the preaching of his word and the reception and keeping and believing of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do bless you for you are the God of our righteousness, the God who has done everything for us in redemption, the God who's provided what you require and demand. You are the great God over all the earth, and you are the great God of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would bless the preaching of the gospel this morning. We pray that you would make us attentive. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be here, that we would hear the voice of the Son of God clearly in our souls. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would call your people, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would give us a clearer sight of who you are and a greater Uh, greater acknowledgement of what we have in you. We pray that you would accomplish all of your holy purposes this morning. We trust you, Father, to do these things for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul has just told the church in Rome that he's never met, that he is eager to come to them, that he is a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish, And he says there in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he gives this reason here in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or perhaps better, from faith to faith, as it is written The righteous, or the just, shall live by faith. Well, it might surprise you to know if you were aware that we just passed Reformation Day and we celebrated uh, 498 years to the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the the castle church door in, in Wittenberg. Uh, and, and set in motion what really changed the world in a way that the world had never been changed except in the coming of Jesus himself and in the Reformation setting in motion that great uh, both spiritual and what ended up being by implication political revolution. Uh, Martin Luther set in motion one of the greatest events in human history but you might be surprised to know that the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg in October of 1517 is probably not where we ought to place the focus in the formation and the propagation of the Reformation in the life of Martin Luther, because if you've ever taken time to read the 95 Theses, you'll know quickly that there's nothing in it about justification by faith alone. There's nothing in it about how Luther came to have peace with God in Jesus Christ. And it's hard to tell when you study Luther's history where exactly This transition occurred. There are a number of years where God's doing these great things in this monk and a number of years where things are happening in his soul. And yet Luther, looking back over his life at the end of his life, a year before his death, 1545, Luther reflecting back on those early events of 1517 and 18 and everything God was doing actually gives us this account. It's what's called his autobiographical fragment. And I want to read this to you. He says, 
Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God, nor was I able to believe that I had pleased him with my satisfaction. I did not love, in fact, I hated that righteous God who punished sinners. If not with silent blasphemy, then certainly with great murmuring, I was angry with God saying, as if it were not enough that miserable sinners should be eternally damned through original sin with all kinds of misfortunes laid on them by the Old Testament law, yet God adds sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and brings his wrath and righteousness to bear in it. Thus I drove myself mad with a desperate, disturbed conscience, persistently pounding upon Paul in this passage, thirsting most ardently to know what he meant. Now listen to this. Here's the change. Luther says, at last, God being merciful, as I meditated day and night on the connection of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, I began to understand that righteousness of God, and by that merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous lives by faith, this immediately made me feel as though I had been born again, and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, the whole face of the scriptures appeared to me in different light. Afterwards, I ran through the scriptures as from memory and found the same analogy in other phrases such as the work of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And now where I had once hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, so much I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of words, so that this passage in Paul became the very gates of paradise to me. Now, I wanted to read that to you because it's very powerful that what Luther felt in his soul was that he had a crisis. Luther didn't understand how God could demand righteousness and yet punish all unrighteousness. Luther didn't understand how could God be a God who demanded perfect holiness and righteousness of his creatures and yet know that he fell so miserably short and so Luther was beating himself into subjection. Luther was trying with everything he had to establish his own righteousness as a monk. He said, I lived an irreproachable life as a monk. He was in every respect a 16th century apostle Paul before Paul was converted. And what Luther discovered when he stumbled across Romans 1, 16 and 17 was the totality of the gospel. It was a universe of mercy and grace that God provided in Jesus Christ. And Luther's conscience was set free. He found the grace of the Lord Jesus. He realized what it meant to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. And it's interesting because what the apostle Paul is going to do here in these two verses is Paul is going to give us the thesis statement, and then unpack that through the rest of this book. And everything in this book is to answer the question, how can you as an unrighteous person stand before the infinitely righteous God? And the answer is that God will provide the righteousness that he demands in Jesus Christ and that he has provided it and that the gospel becomes the power of God into salvation and that the deepest need of your soul is not how you're going to have peace with your spouse. It's not how you're going to be able to pay your car off or your house off or make sure that your kids get through life and get off to college. But how can you, an unrighteous sinner, stand before the infinitely holy God of the universe on Judgment Day? And the answer, Paul says, is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now we're going to see three things, two things this morning. First, we're going to see the reason why Paul wanted to preach 
the gospel of the righteousness of God by faith in Rome. And then we're going to see, secondly, the reason why Paul was not ashamed of this gospel. Notice there that there is a connection, a logical connection with verse 15, where Paul's just told this church he's never met, I can't wait to come to you. I can't wait to preach the gospel. I'm a debtor to preach the gospel to the whole world. And notice, he says there in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that seems like a weird connection. I can't wait to come to Rome. I can't wait to preach the gospel in Rome I'm because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I think for us to understand what Paul's doing here, because Paul is very methodical, um, one writer says Paul glides from point to point. He glides very logically, very reasonably. He's explaining these things. And Paul is saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He wants to preach that gospel in Rome. And the question we have to ask is, why would Paul say it the way he did? Paul doesn't strike us as a man that's ashamed of the gospel. In fact, everywhere else that the Apostle Paul ever talks about the gospel it is almost always in positive terms. This is what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel does. Here's what you have in Jesus Christ. Here's the benefits you have. Here's the blessings you have. Know who you are. Know what God has done in Jesus. And here, in a strange twist, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, there could be several things at work in Paul's mind and heart here. I think one very clearly is he is heading to the center of the known world. He doesn't know that he's going to end up there and that God's going to answer his prayer about coming there as a prisoner. He doesn't know he's going to end up in Rome as a prisoner. God's going to answer that prayer of Paul. Paul wants to go to the center of the world in his day, the center of philosophy, the center of politics, the center of finance. It is New York and London and Beijing in one. And you have no concept for what Rome was. And so it's likely that writing to these people, they may say at the front end, oh, what, Paul, you're going to come here to the most powerful nation in the world. You're going to come here, and you're going to preach the gospel here. You're going to be laughed at. We know what it's like. We live here. We know it's hopeless. You've heard people say this when you talk about someone that is close to someone else, and you say, well, it would be great if God would change their heart. And, and you've heard even well-meaning Christians sometimes, well, yeah, like that would happen. And there's a sense where there's a forgetting There's a forgetting what the gospel is. And the shame, because we forget what the gospel is, kicks in and we become ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says to this church, he says, listen, I'm coming to Rome and I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm coming to preach the gospel there. I'm unashamed of this gospel. In fact, what's interesting, what Paul's going to do in the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 18, is he's going to tell them the problem with Rome itself And the problem with every man, woman, child in this world, a problem that they are either not aware of or that they choose to suppress and to deny for themselves. And Paul essentially could say, it's not I who should be ashamed of the gospel. It is the world that should be ashamed of their sin. It is men and women who should be ashamed of what they are by nature. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I will come to the most powerful nation in the world. I will proclaim the message that God has accomplished everything necessary for the salvation of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, intelligent and unintelligent. I will bring the gospel to the wise and the unwise. Notice there. Notice that Paul actually gives that disclaimer when he says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. 
both to the wise and to the foolish. I think Paul is putting these little clues in what he's saying about why some might think he should be ashamed of preaching the gospel. Paul may have even been tempted. There may have been a temptation in Paul's soul thinking about the daunting task of going into the the epicenter of the world in his day to proclaim the message of a crucified Savior, a crucified and risen Savior. There may have been a temptation, and Paul may be dealing with that temptation to be ashamed by saying, I'm not ashamed, I'm a debtor. The gospel is a message for wise and unwise, not just for those who are learned and, and trained in the best schools in Rome. And that's, and that's really what he's up against. Let me read to you the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones are so helpful here. Lloyd-Jones says, the fact is that the world attaches great significance to mind and to intellect, to learning and to understanding, and not only that, to moral effort and moral striving too. It glories in these things, but the gospel does not. That does not mean that the gospel tells you to commit intellectual suicide or that an able man cannot be a Christian, but it does mean that the gospel tells all men at the very beginning that it does not matter how able a man may be, that alone will never make him a Christian. It puts the able man on exactly the same level as those who are most lacking in intellect. He said that again. It puts the able man on exactly the same level as those who are most lacking in intellect. And you know what? The world hates that. Don't deceive yourselves. The world hates a message that says it doesn't matter how smart you are, how unlearned you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. The world will say the gospel ought to be for poor people. Poor people need the gospel. Rich people don't need the gospel. The world will say smart people People who are learned, people who use their minds that God gave them, people who work hard, those are the people that need the gospel. And the scriptures say, no, no effort, no learning, nothing that you have. Everybody's on the same playing field. Everything's flattened out. Jesus Christ is the Savior for the whole world, and only that message of what he has accomplished will be the salvation of the world, and the world hates it. And you know what? Luther hated it, and we hate it by nature. We hate that by nature because it levels man's pride. It says, not only are you not good enough, you are so much worse than you could ever imagine. And nothing you have and nothing you do, nothing commends you to God. Nothing will put you in a right standing with God. Nothing will help you get salvation in and of yourselves. And the more that comes, the more we don't like that because it humbles us and it, and it attacks the very root of the deepest problem of our hearts, which is pride. And the world hates that. And so the world hates the message of the gospel. And so there's always a danger. There's always a danger that we become ashamed of the gospel. And so Paul tells us at the outset, he says, listen, I'm coming to Rome. The reason I'm coming there is to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We need not be ashamed of the gospel. I think as I've meditated on this, The more the message of the gospel changes us in the whole man, the more we'll be ready to preach it to the whole world. The more it changes you in your mind and your will and your emotions and your hearts, the more you are impacted by the truth of Jesus Christ, the more your life is changed by what he's done, the more you'll be ready in an unashamed way to tell everyone else about it. And so Paul models that for us. Paul then, secondly, gives us several reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And this is really the the heart of this letter. Notice that 
He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The very first thing that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. If you did a word association um, test in Rome in this day, and you said white, they would say black. If you said horse, they would say chariot. If you said power, they would say Rome. They would say Rome. They would say Caesar. Um, And Paul is saying, oh, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, number one, because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is God's power. Notice that he doesn't say it it has God's power behind it. It's very important. Paul doesn't say that the gospel has God's power behind it. He doesn't say it produces God's power. He doesn't say it brings God's power. He says it is the power of God. Of God unto salvation. What God has done in Jesus Christ is God's power unto salvation. That's why I can be confident as a minister that when I tell men and women about Jesus Christ, I may not see any evidence of anything happening, and yet all of the power of Almighty God unto salvation is happening in their lives and their consciences and their minds and their hearts, and the Holy Spirit is making that power to be efficacious in them. And here's the, here's the remarkable thing. Like Luther, when Luther was unconverted and he thought about the righteousness of God, think about this. If you think about the power of God, the first thing you ought not think about is unto salvation. The first thing you ought to think about is unto condemnation and damnation. You ought to think when you think about the power of God, that this holy God who has all power against whom we've sinned, to whose lives we are indebted, that that guy, God ought to send everybody to hell in all of his wrath and all of his power. That is the Bible's testimony. But Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is amazing. It's amazing that the God who should direct all of his power in condemning sinners like us has so ordered it in his wisdom to make it the very salvation of God to us for all eternity. He has so ordered it. You know, there's a, there a sermon by uh, James Henley Thornwell. He was a president of University of South Carolina um, in the 19th century. And Thornwell has a sermon in which he says, when God sought out mercy, when he sought out a plan of mercy, when he thought about how I'm going to craft salvation for my people, there was a crisis. There was a crisis in the divine judgment seat. There was a crisis before God. How can God be holy and righteous, and how can God save sinners? How can God vindicate his righteousness and his holiness? How can he punish sin? How can he deal with all transgressions? How He has to. He has to make every wrong right. How can he do that, and yet how can he pardon guilty sinners like us? And what Thornwell does is then unpacks the rest of Romans and 1 Corinthians, and he says, listen, mercy and truth have met together in the death of our Lord Jesus. God has resolved. He has upheld the law. He has upheld his righteous standard. He has upheld his holiness and his perfection, and he has provided salvation and redemption for his people. And, and here's the thing. The more that you get that, the more that you see that God in the death of Jesus is simultaneously upholding his perfect righteousness and holiness and simultaneously pardoning you of all your sins and and perfectly being just and the justifier, that will be power to you. That will be power in your soul. That will set you free 
in your soul and in your conscience. It's what happened to Luther. Luther's laboring for years came to an end when he realized the gospel was the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We'll notice that uh, next, Paul gives us the reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he tells us that there is uh, something universal about it. There's a universal scope to it. Notice he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, that it is what every man needs. Romans needed it. Those in Ephesus need it. Those in America need it. Those in Richmond Hill need it. Those in Philadelphia need it. Those in London need it. Those in the Middle East need it. Every single man and woman needs this message. It is God's power of salvation to Jew and to Greek, to every man and woman under the sun. There is no one exempted. And so Paul says, I'm unashamed of this message because this is what everybody needs. And it's what God's provided for the whole world. God has provided redemption for every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I often think about my lack of zeal for missions, um, both locally and foreign. And when we read what Paul says here, when we read, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek that should stir up in us a desire that we'd be praying for missionaries, that we'd be supporting missions, that we'd be supporting church planning, that we would be zealous in, in, in seeing the world know the saving power and grace of God. We, we looked last week, we said, why, why would we not want somebody else to know the remedy that we've known? Why would we not want everyone else to know the power that we've known? Why would we not want everybody to be made a new creature? Why would we not want the most vile person on the face of the earth to be made a new creature? I think that's a litmus test. Not just have you been involved in missions, do you support missionaries, but when you think about people who are very wicked in the world, notoriously wicked people, do you think I want them to know Jesus? When you feel that impulse and you, you just wish that God would do something horrible to them, do you stop yourself and say, I should be praying that they would know the same mercy and grace and power that I've known? The Apostle Paul had that as his, his guide. He says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now let me say this. There, is, there are two things we need to know about this. The first is that the gospel is nothing that you do and God is not saying, he's not calling you to do anything in it. The gospel is something God does. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation of what God has done in Christ. If it's something that you do, if the gospel is something that you do, it's God saying, hey, I want you to do this. You need to live like this and this and this and this. You need to be this kind of husband and this kind of father and this kind of wife and this kind of child. If it's God telling you what to do, then that would mean the power is in you. And here Paul says, it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe that it's what God has done. It is a proclamation of what God has done. And yet, secondly, notice there is a, a response that is demanded. It's to everyone who believes. 
And so any idea of universal salvation is out the window. Any idea that God's just going to save everybody irrespective of what they did, what they did with Jesus Christ, what they did with what they heard, out the window, gone. Universal salvation, heresy, not in the Bible, not true. God says that the gospel is salvation to everyone who believes. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it look like to believe? If you had to ask yourself, do I have saving faith in Jesus? And you have to ask yourself that. What does that mean? Let me read to you this last quote. J.C. Ryle, I think this is amazing. He says, um, saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ holding out help to him. He grasps it and is saved. This is faith. Saving faith is the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite bitten by the fiery serpent in the wilderness at the point of death. The Lord Jesus is offered to him as the brazen serpent set up for his cure. He looks and is healed. This is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for lack of food and sick of a severe disease. The Lord Jesus is set before him as the bread of life and the universal medicine. He receives it and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy, is in fear of being overtaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower, a hiding place, and a refuge. He runs into it and is safe. This is faith. Faith is receiving and resting in Jesus. It is, as we sung in the hymn earlier, all that he requires is that you see your need for him. All that he requires is that you feel your need for him. The Israelites were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness. They were dying. They were perishing. They had poison in their bodies. God said, look to the brazen serpent and you'll be healed. And whoever looked at that serpent, that was saving faith. That was a picture of saving faith. Whoever looks to the Lord Jesus Christ and casts the eyes of their soul on him. Let me tell you this. That's a gift from God. Don't you think for one second that you have in yourself the ability to do that apart from God giving you that grace? And don't think for one second it's enough to know who Jesus is and not to receive and rest in him for salvation. There will be many who will say on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. But it is a receiving and a resting in Jesus Christ. It is coming off of your own righteousness. It is saying, I will not try to establish my own righteousness. I am undone. I am helpless. If you've never come to that point, I'm begging you to think about these things. If you have never come to a point where you say, there is nothing in me, I have no hope whatsoever, save in what God has done in Jesus Christ, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling, if you've never come to that point, I'm begging you to go to God and say, Lord, teach me what it is to trust in your son. Saving faith is receiving and resting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everybody who believes, Jew and Gentile. And then, if that's not enough, finally he says in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The most important thing 
for your mind and conscience to have a quiet and settled mind and heart before God is to know that you have the righteousness of God imputed to you by Jesus Christ. That's what God has done. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death for us. He took our unrighteousness on himself. He merited a perfect righteousness for us. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that he requires of you, he reveals by sending his son as your representative. And Jesus comes and he does everything you couldn't do and that God demanded of you to do, and he provides a perfect righteousness for you. And the moment you believe, that righteousness by imputation is yours. It doesn't change you inside. It changes your standing before God. If you're in Christ, God sees you as perfectly righteous. Not in and of yourself, but because he is the representative. Listen, if you've never heard this, never heard this. Hear this this morning. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have the perfect righteousness of God accounted to you. That's in your bank account. And I want to say this this morning. It is the hardest thing in the world to believe. It's the hardest thing in the world to believe because our consciences are hardwired to try to establish our unrighteousness. It is the, only the supernatural grace of faith, God giving you faith, will help you off your, un, off your own self-righteousness, your own attempt to establish it like Luther, and will say everything that you need is in Jesus Christ. Everything that he is, he is for you. And that is, and, and listen, on Judgment Day, Only those who can say in this life and can say it truly, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, only they will stand for all eternity because those are the ones who have learned that nothing within themselves puts them in a right standing with God. It's actually an insult. Paul will go on later in this book and he'll actually say that if you are in any way trying to establish your unrighteousness, that you are building up debt, like in a bank account of wrath. It's like put five more dollars in there for more wrath. This is this how serious this is. But what God has done and why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel and why we're not ashamed of the gospel is God has provided what he required. He provides it freely. It's all by grace. It's been done. Trust in Jesus. And notice what Paul says. Essentially, he says, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, I believed when I was 12. I believed when I was 15. I prayed a prayer. It is an everyday preaching the gospel to yourself. Notice that he says, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That means every second that we're alive, we should be living by faith in Jesus. If you ever get to a point where you think, I I want the cross behind me, I want the resurrection behind me, I'm done with that, I'm moving forward, I don't need that anymore, I don't need Jesus right this second, I don't need him, then you are not living by faith. The just, those who have been justified, who have received the righteousness of God, live by faith in the same gospel. And that means every morning when we wake up and our minds are dragging and lapsing into the world and thinking about everything we have to do every day and thinking about worries and thinking about conflicts and thinking about people that bother us and thinking about things we have to do, more important than all of that is that we preach the gospel to ourselves and we preach to ourselves what Jesus Christ did for us 
because it's the same faith that justifies us. That same faith is the faith we live by. For everything in life, it is a second by second living the life of faith until we are in glory with Jesus and that faith is turned to sight. I'm going to stop. I want to say, as we close, there's so much in this book that we're going to retouch on. Um, meditate on these verses. You know, Luther, when he gives his autobiography and he talks about the change that happened in him, talks about the many years that these verses plagued him and then the long hours of meditation on them. And it was in these words that God broke through in the most magnificent way that the righteousness of God that ought to stand against us for all eternity is given to us for the salvation of our souls in the gospel, which is the power of God given to us freely by grace through faith. Now, that will change, that will change everything in your life when you get that. When you really get that, it will change your life. You will have peace. You know, it was only 50 years later, 50 years after Luther um, uh, was anathematized by the church that taught the, another gospel, that that church said the greatest of all Protestant heresies was assurance of salvation. If you want assurance of salvation, it's only going to be found in the message of Romans 1, 16 and 17. And if it's tweaked at all, at any point, you will have unrest in your souls. God wants you to be at peace. He'll go on and he'll say this at the end. In, in chapter 5, he'll say, Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to have peace. That comes through the message of the gospel that we're unashamed of because it's God's power unto salvation. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this, this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would take this feeble effort of mine and that you would make each and every one in this place to hear clearly uh, the words of the Apostle Paul and the words of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would um, quicken our minds and hearts, that you would make us to see with um, more gratitude and more clarity what it means that the gospel is your power unto salvation to all who believe and that in it you reveal your righteousness to us. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. We pray that you'd help us to rest in that message and that truth today. We pray that you'd help us to feed on Christ as we come to the table, that you would build us up in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.